Hello, I'm Rebecca Larson, owner of TudorsDynasty.com, and you have found my podcast. In the last episode, we ended with Catherine Howard, married, and Thomas Cromwell, executed. If you missed it, I'd recommend going back and listening to that one first. It was called Catherine Howard, Part 1. After weeks of reading and researching Catherine Howard, I have come to my own conclusion on who I believe she was as a person. Often we hear people call her naive or abused, but I've come to the realization that Catherine was merely immature and reckless. She made many mistakes in her life, ones that if she had the maturity to think through, she would not have committed. As Queen of England, Catherine is only remembered for being the fifth wife of Henry VIII and the second one who was executed. If it hadn't been for her scandalous downfall and said execution, we would not have as much interest in Catherine as we do today. In an alternative history setting, one can imagine that Catherine was the last wife of Henry VIII, that she possibly gave birth to a prince or a princess, Because, let's be serious, if she didn't, then her ending would be the same. It's also possible that she, like Jane Seymour, could have died of childbed fever. All these options are possibilities, but we know her ending. And for me, she will forever be the Howard girl who was reckless and immature and who loved quickly. But before we get too deep into her story... I need to send out a special thank you to my newest patron on Patreon. Azaria, thank you so much for finding my podcast and becoming a patron. Thank you. If you'd like to become a patron as well, you can go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com and click become a patron. For as little as a dollar per month, you can support my podcast and website. All the money received goes right back into the show and resource materials to ensure you receive accurate information. Your generosity is greatly appreciated. Did you know that I'm now available in the iTunes podcast store? If you have an Apple device, you can find me there by simply opening the podcast app and then searching Tudor's Dynasty. Don't forget the S in Tudor's. Feel free to leave a review as well because, let's be honest, I like to hear positive feedback. Now that that's all out of the way, let's get back to the show. Sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and prepare to be transported back in time to the continued life of Catherine Howard, 5th Queen of Henry VIII. Henry and Catherine married at Oatlands Palace, which was one of Henry's favorite hunting spots. Leading up to their wedding, Catherine did not see much of her future husband because he remained in London for most of July 1540. There, he was taking care of business matters and concluding his marriage to his fourth wife, Anne of Cleves. The couple's wedding took place at the end of the month on the 28th of July. The ceremony and number of guests was considered even smaller than the previous queen's wedding. That would explain the rumors about Catherine carrying a child on her wedding day. They were at the obscure Oatlands Palace, the hunting lodge, really. So it was a good distance from anything. And the number of guests for the ceremony was small. It makes it seem like you're trying to hide something, that you have a secret you want to keep. Unfortunately for the rumor maker, their tale was just that, a tale. 
If her wedding night with Henry was the first time they slept together, Catherine would have been greeted by a giant of a man who was thicker in the waist than he had been when he married her cousin, Anne Boleyn. The ulcer on his leg emitted an awful odor, which only became worse over time. She would have to overlook all these imperfections and perform her wifely duty to consummate the marriage and make it legal. Petite Catherine would have paled in size by comparison to the impressive stature of Henry VIII. He was still made of godlike stature, even with some extra inches around his waist. At this point in his life, he wasn't the grossly obese Henry. Yet. There's one part of this story that we need to discuss because there are still those who believe Henry VIII had syphilis. This is false. Author Gareth Russell in his book about Catherine Howard states the story originated in 1888, but was revived again in 1958 when a Danish historian wrote The Medical Problems of Henry VIII. The historian's name was Uwe Brinch, and he argued that portraits of Henry show a ridge in his nose that is consistent with syphilitic guma. There are no indications in the medical records that survive that Henry was ever treated with mercury for syphilis. So, let's just drop that tall tale and move on. After their honeymoon was over, Henry and Catherine began their journey back to London, and probably made a stop along the way at Nunsuch Palace. Nunsuch was under construction and wouldn't be finished for five more years. This palace was one of the king's hunting lodges, and would have been a great place to stop on their way back to London. Around this time, the plague was running rampant throughout England. It's believed that the great drought and heat from the year caused the pestilence to grow and spread. It wasn't until the 8th of August that a formal announcement was made about the king's wedding. This announcement was made at Hampton Court Palace. It wasn't very long after the wedding announcement that friends from the queen's past were looking for a job in her household. The first friend who appears to have reached out was Joan Bolmer. Joan was not enjoying married life and begged the new queen to save her from her misery by giving her a prestigious position at court. It appears that Catherine was coerced into giving her friend a position in her household. Kate Emerson has Joan Bulmer listed as a chamberer in the household. A chamberer performed more menial tasks such as arranging bedding and cleaning the queen's private chambers. There were many others from Catherine's past who obtained positions within her household. Another woman by the name of Catherine Tilney was appointed as chamberer as well. A servant from the household of the Dowager Duchess, Alice Wilkies, also held the same position. These women were all aware of Catherine's past and how she would want to keep it secret from the king and the court. It's probable that these ladies never even had to ask for the job, that a job was just offered to them in a way to help keep Catherine's past a secret. Catherine Tilney was especially dangerous because she shared a bed with Catherine at Chessworth, Anne was there one night when Catherine and Francis Derham were being intimate. Catherine's grandmother, the Dowager Duchess, and her uncle William, along with his wife, were all too keen at this point to do whatever it took to keep Catherine's past hidden. By the time they all realized that the king had made plans to wed her, it was too late to come clean. The household of the queen also included family members. Her grandmother, Agnes Tilney, Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, was a great lady of the household. Her half-sister, Isabel Lee, Lady Bainton, was a lady of the Privy Chamber, as well as her other half-sister, Margaret Howard, Lady Arundel, who was a gentlewoman attendant. 
Catherine ended up having 34 women in her household, and they were separated by ranks. There were six great ladies, four ladies, and four gentlewomen of the privy chamber. There were also nine ladies of exalted rank, five maids of honor, and also a mother of the maids, as always. These ladies included Lady Margaret Douglas, Mary Howard, Duchess of Richmond and Somerset, Lady Margaret Howard, her aunt, Catherine Brandon, the Duchess of Suffolk, Mary Radcliffe, Countess of Sussex, and here's a surprise, the King's former mistress and mother of Henry Fitzroy, Elizabeth Blount, now Lady Clinton. Catherine's privy chamber included her half-sister Isabel, Jane Boleyn, Lady Rochford, Catherine, Lady Edgecombe, Eleanor Paston, Lady Rutland, and Parr, Lady Herbert, who was entrusted with the Queen's jewels. Elizabeth Tyrwitt, Joyce Lee, and Susanna Gilman. It wasn't only women from Catherine's past that were looking for positions within her household, but also her ex-lover, Francis Derham. But we'll go into that a little bit further later. The curfew in place for the staff of the Queen was 9 o'clock. If there was anything Catherine needed in the middle of the night, she would have a lady-in-waiting who slept nearby to attend her when needed. As soon as the 29th of August, merely a month into their wedding, that the Privy Council noted a man had been imprisoned for having words about the Queen. As I dug deeper to discover who that man was, I came across a statement in the Annals of Windsor, since Windsor was mentioned in the letters and papers, that declared the Privy Council was held at Grafton on the 29th of August and that the Lord Privy Seal received letters which stated the Dean of Windsor was the one who spoke against the Queen and was discharged by the Keeper of Windsor. He was sent to prison for speaking unfitting words of the Queen's grace. We don't know what happened to him, but we do know that Henry VIII's pleasure was to keep him imprisoned for further punishment. Catherine was slowly working her way into the official role as Queen in her first few months of marriage. This would be a whole new reality for the girl who spent time as a ward in her grandmother's household. After their initial stop at Hampton Court Palace to announce Catherine as Henry VIII's fifth wife, Catherine stayed away from London for most of the fall of 1540. During that time, the newlyweds traveled from one household to another before returning to Windsor on the 20th of October. In books and pop culture, Catherine has been known as Henry's Rose Without a Thorn or The Dazzling Rose Without a Thorn. I'm embarrassed to say that I've repeated that nickname, actually wrote it in an article or made it a headline at least one time. Now, I need to go back and edit that. The phrase was actually referring to Henry himself and the Tudor Rose. Here's a quote by Gareth Russell in Young and Damned and Fair. Quote, The Tudor Rose was the flower without a thorn, a royal succession that would inflict no more wounds on the nation. End quote. Now, there are no contemporary reports of the Queen being called by this nickname. There was, however, a coin made in 1526 that used the phrase again, in reference to King Henry and the dynasty. As Queen Catherine had no clear agenda, whether religious or political, it appears that at the beginning of her reign, she had restraint and self-preservation in mind at all times. She did, however, wish to shower favor on her servants. We can look no further than the letter she received from Archbishop Lee on the 7th of December, 1540, informing her that her request for her chaplain to fill the position of Archdeacon of York was declined. He only took orders from the king on this matter. It was well known that Lady Mary was not a big fan of her new stepmother. Catherine was disgusted by the fact that Mary would not treat her with the respect due 
and threatened to take away two of her maids as punishment. Now, on the 5th of December, 1540, Eustace Chapuis wrote a letter to the Queen of Hungary, and he mentions the Queen's behavior toward the Lady Mary. He mentions in the letter that the Queen had threatened to take away two of Mary's maids, because the princess did not treat her with the same respect as her two predecessors. Somehow, Lady Mary found a way to get back in her good graces, and since then, the maids were allowed to stay. Both Lady Mary and Catherine got along for a short while after the threat was made, but it appears that two months later, Catherine made good on her threat. She removed two ladies from Mary's household. Apparently, one of her ladies who was removed from Mary's service died not long after from apparent grief of being removed from Mary's service. Now, it was while the couple was still at Windsor Castle that Francis Derham arrived in London from his time away in Ireland. Remember from the last podcast when we talked about Derham and Catherine marrying when he returned? Well, now she was married to the king. When a servant in the Howard household heard of Derham's return, they told Margaret Howard, Catherine's aunt, that, quote, if I were Derham, I would never tell to die for it, end quote. Francis Derham is referred to as impulsive and possessive, so his silence would need to be obtained for all their sakes. Francis was smart, or dumb, depending on how you look at it. He knew that Catherine would want to keep their past a secret, and so he requested a job in her household. He most likely approached his former employer, Agnes Tilney, Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, to obtain a post. Tilney then approached the Queen about it, and there were only a handful of people included in this decision. Catherine herself, the Dowager Duchess, the Countess of Bridgewater, William Howard, and his wife, Margaret Howard. All family members. Whatever they decided would inevitably affect them all, one way or another. From the moment Francis Derham showed up in London, it caused great anxiety in the Queen, and those near her who were familiar with her past. At some point before Halloween, William Howard, Catherine's uncle, brought Derham with him to court. This was the perfect opportunity to have what would look like a spontaneous meeting. But, really, it had all been planned. Catherine is quoted as saying, quote, My lady of Norfolk hath desired me to be good unto him, and so I will. End quote. Francis Derham was not made the Queen's private secretary, as is often portrayed. That position was held by Thomas Derby, and then a man by the name of John Huddoff, who served the Queen until she was no longer Queen. It seems that they were not certain where to place Derham. They knew better than to grant him a position with great power, because that would look very suspicious. What he was given is not clear, but whatever it was kept him close enough to be watched, but not so close to be suspicious. The Privy Council noted that the King and Queen left Windsor on the 23rd of November for Walking Palace. This was another of Henry's favorite hunting spots. The location was small, so the royal couple only brought with them a small retinue. This trip was needed for the aging king, and he was quoted as saying that, quote, he feels much better than when he resided all winter at his houses at the gates of this town in London, end quote. Oatlands Palace was the next stop, and merely two weeks after arriving at Walking, they arrived at Oatlands Palace, the place where they were married roughly five months prior. They stayed at Oatlands for 11 days, while continuing their hunting and hawking. On the 18th of December, Queen Catherine arrived back at Hampton Court Palace, and was ready to completely embrace her new position as queen. 
Three days later, on the 21st, Catherine met with the Eustace Chapuis for the first time. This was his first opportunity to get a look at the new queen and make his own judgment. The queen was most magnificently dressed and was decorated with jewels. Being the Queen of England and having a husband who would give you the world left Catherine very fortunate during the Christmas season. It was reported that she received a pearl necklace with 200 pearls and a necklace with six large diamonds and five rubies, as well as smaller pearls and more diamonds. Two accents. These were among the most awesome gifts received. She also received a black velvet muff, which would keep her delicate hands warm in the winter months. The list of gifts went on and on, and it must have been amazing for Catherine. On the 31st of January, 1541, it was noted in letters and papers that the king gave Catherine a plethora of lordships and manors, as well as castles and a couple of forests and parks. The list of items received is quite unbelievable. Catherine was now a very wealthy woman. A couple of months later, we get a hint at the generosity of the young queen, when on the 1st of March, 1541, it shows up in the council notes about the Countess of Salisbury. A letter sent to the queen's tailor to make a nightgown furred, actually two of them, a kirtle of worsted, or woolen kirtle, and a petticoat furred and four other items, including a bonnet, four pair of shoes, four pair of hose, and a pair of slippers. Evidently, Salisbury made complaints about how cold it was. The king's tailor was also sent a letter and informed to make a large gown of damask furred with black coney, as well as nine other items for his relative, Arthur Plantagenet, Lord Lyle, who was also in the tower at the time. Now, scholars have said that this made Catherine the generous party, but after reading the excerpt, it makes me wonder if it was all Henry's idea, and Catherine just suggested he do the same for Margaret Pole, as he would for his half-uncle. It's quite possible that Catherine was making a mark in her role as queen by finding causes that were worthy to her. On the 17th of January, Sir Thomas Wyatt was arrested and sent to the Tower of London on suspicion of treason. And on the following day, Sir John Wallop was arrested as well. In March, while staying at Greenwich after Catherine's official entrance into London, King Henry announced his intention to free both Wyatt and Wallop, a request he had received from the Queen and he couldn't refuse. On the 26th of March, there was a note from the council to William Howard that mentions the King's pardon. William Howard had replaced Wallop as ambassador to France after his arrest. Quote, a great intercession was made for him, Wallop, and Wyatt by the Queen. The King has pardoned him and holds him in no less estimation than ever. Wyatt acted in the same way, and at the great suit of the queen, the king pardoned him. Their pardons have been delivered, and they sent for hither to Dover to the king. End quote. Ambassador Chapuis wrote a letter to Charles V the following day that stated, quote, It was the first time since her marriage that she had passed through London by the Thames. The people gave her a splendid reception, and the tower guns saluted her. His letter also mentions the release of Wyatt and Wallop. Quote, from this triumphal march, she took occasion to ask the release of Wyatt, which the king granted, though on hard conditions, that he should confess his guilt and that he should take back his wife from whom he had been separated upwards of 15 years on pain of death if he be untrue to her henceforth. On the same day, a full pardon and release was given to Mr. Wallop, who, since his return to England, had been detained a prisoner in the house of my lord Privy Seal, end quote. 
Soon, rumors were abundant that the queen was with child. Ambassador Merlick, the French ambassador, wrote that, quote, This queen is thought to be with child, which would be a very great joy to this king, who, it seems, believes it and intends, if it be found true, to have her crowned at Whitsuntide. Already the embroiderers that can be got are employed making furniture and tapestry, the copes and ornaments taken from the churches not being spared. Moreover, the young lords and gentlemen of this court are practicing daily for the jousts and tournaments to then be made. End quote. By Easter, some of the ladies of the Queen's household began to notice the preferential treatment that Lady Rochford was receiving. As with any setting that contains a bunch of women, jealousy began to set in. This decision on the part of Catherine Howard may not have been the moment that she made a fatal mistake, but it definitely did not help her cause. We're going to stop there for this week and continue next week with the complete downfall of Catherine Howard. But before we go, I would like to list the people who are currently patrons on Patreon. I appreciate your monthly generosity and you deserve a shout out. So here we go. In no particular order, thank you to the following people who are patrons on Patreon. Azaria, Dale R., Jessica K., Kim W., Rachel D., Lynn J., Lacey W., Carol B., Joy B., James V., Anne L., Alithia B., Lisa N., Nora C., Maria S., Stacy O., Cynthia R., Nicole T., Mary T., Cheryl T., Carrie H., Heather T., Tanya R., Catherine R., Jen D., and Melissa C. Thank you so much for your continued support. This podcast could not continue without your generosity. Until next week.